find Genesis 37 tonight, and uh, I need you to kind of uh, put a finger there, and we're going to be going all the way to chapter 50 tonight. And then I also need you to turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Uh, Genesis 37 to 50. 250. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Romans chapter 8. And let's begin tonight in Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 18. Romans 8 verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then if you turn back to Genesis 37 and uh, just hang on to that because we're going to do sort of a quick scan here in a moment of about 13 chapters. Okay. Now, you may remember the following story I told you several years ago. And if you remember that story, tonight I want you to disregard whatever negative feelings you might have about gambling. Okay? On Friday, March 29th, 1984, Robert Cunningham ate a meal of Linguini and clam sauce at his favorite restaurant, Saul's Pizzeria, where he had been a regular customer for the past seven years. His waitress, Phyllis Penza, had worked at Saul's for 19 years. After his meal, Cunningham made a good-natured offer to Penza. He said she could either have a tip or split his winnings if his number was drawn at the upcoming New York State Lottery. Well, Penza chose to, to take a chance on the lottery. And she and Cunningham chose the numbers together. Well, on Saturday night that week, Cunningham won. And the jackpot was $6 million dollars. And then he faced a moment of truth. Would he keep his promise? Would he give the waitress a tip of $3 million? Cunningham, a police sergeant, a husband, a father of four, and a grandfather of three said, I won't back out. Besides, friendship means more than money. He kept his promise. 
and he split the money. Does that story sound familiar? Sure it does. Hollywood picked up on the story and made a movie out of it starring Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda called It Could Happen to You. Did anybody see the movie? A few people? Okay. The movie was accurate in as far as Nicolas Cage playing a police officer and Bridget Fonda playing the waitress. But then the movie went on to turn it into a love story between the two. The real characters behind the movie are happily married and they were never anything with one another except good friends. And Robert White, uh, Robert's wife, unlike Nicolas Cage's wife in the movie, who is stingy and greedy, in real life, his wife insisted along with Robert and along with his own convictions that he needed to keep his promise and split the earnings with the waitress. Promises. Promises. Now, folks, fortunately, the story of Robert Cunningham and Phyllis Penza is a great story of integrity and a great story of promises being kept. Well, folks, we serve a God who keeps his promises. Amen? Paul says to Titus in Titus 1-2 that God has promised to us eternal life. And he says, God does not lie. God keeps his promises. Now tonight, we're going to see God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As those promises are going to be picked up and carried on through the life of Joseph. Joseph, the story of Joseph is going to occupy more space in the book of Genesis than any other single character. But it's not just simply because of who he is, that he's a colorful figure or something like that. But what's being highlighted is God's promises to the patriarchs are now going to be picked up and carried on in Joseph's life. Now, folks, as we think about Joseph, I also want you to think with me about what we read out of Romans 8. Romans 8. I can't help but think that as Paul wrote Romans 8, 28, that he was probably directly thinking about Joseph. Now, he could have been thinking about Moses He could have been thinking about Daniel. He could have been thinking about any number of biblical characters. But because of what Joseph says in chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, I can't help but think maybe Joseph was Paul's inspiration behind what Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. Well, what I want us to do in Genesis tonight is do a little bit of an overview of where we're about to start heading in future weeks in the book of Genesis. So take your Bibles if you're not with me at chapter 37 already. Find chapter 37 and let's just do a a bit of an overview some of these verses. Look at verse 2. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old, you may want to underscore at this point how old he is. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. You want to highlight that also. Now Israel, or Jacob that is, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So here we see... 
Joseph receiving a gift that none of the other sons received. And it was a a luxurious robe. A robe, uh, some translations say, of many colors. A coat of many colors. And it was distinguished from the type of robes that young men would wear out in the field to work. So probably on top of getting a gift that was a gift of favoritism, there was also a message in it, you don't have to work in the fields like your brother's. Well, we're told that he was the favorite son of Jacob. And we're told why. He was born in Jacob's old age. But why else was he a favorite son? Rachel. Rachel was his mother. And of course, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Don't you know that this had to be a very tense household? With this sibling rivalry going on. And folks, Jacob has set this unfortunate scenario up, hasn't he? He's largely responsible. Now, Joseph doesn't do anything to help. What's Joseph do? He's a tattletale. He brings a bad report. What else uh, does he do? Braggart, what else does he do? Very good. He tells them about his dreams. So all of those factors come together to say that not only did Jacob cause this, but Joseph himself didn't do much to help. He made it worse. Now, folks, verse 12, if you'll look over at verse 12, this is interesting. It says, now his brothers went to pasture their their father's flock near Shechem. What's interesting about that verse? Exactly. Uh, That's where Dinah, their sister, had been raped. And then... Joseph's older brothers killed all of the men of that area. And so they had to flee from that area. They were afraid for their lives. Now, it's kind of puzzling. Now, he's sending the boys back up into that area to tend the flocks, tend the herds. And he sends Joseph up there to spy on them. You honestly have to wonder where Jacob's head is. What is Jacob thinking? Now, folks, God has to be the one setting this narrative up because I struggle to to see how a father like Jacob could have been so blind by his actions, everything he's doing with Joseph. So you've got to also see the fact that God is setting this whole narrative up. Now look over at verse 28 of chapter 37. And then we're going to look at verse 36 also. Then Midianite traders passed by. First of all, I'm I'm skipping over some of it here. They were going to kill him. They decided not to kill him but to sell him. Uh, They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now look down at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, keep reading. Look over at chapter 39. Chapter 39, and read with me verses 2 and 3. 
says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Look down at verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now at this point, Joseph is being contrasted with his brother Judah. I skipped over chapter uh, 38 that talks about Judah and Tamar. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, Judah's wife died. He was going up to a city. He saw his daughter-in-law that she dressed up like a harlot. He slept with her. So anyway, if anything, uh, Joseph is being contrasted. He's a man with a better character than his brother Judah. Well, look at verses still in chapter 39. Look at verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Because remember what happened? Joseph fled, left his cloak behind, and Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. So Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Turn over to chapter 40. What I'm wanting to do is just show you some of the some of the mountain peak experiences, good and bad, in Joseph's life. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Look at chapter 40, verses 20 to 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Remember when Joseph was thrown into prison? And the baker and the cupbearer had dreams. Joseph interpreted the dreams. It happens just as Joseph said. But the chief cupbearer, getting out of prison, getting back into the king's court, does not remember Joseph. Look over at chapter 41. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent, because Pharaoh's had troubling dreams. And the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I was supposed to have told you about this guy that interpreted my dream in prison. And, and it turned out just like he said. So Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph ans- answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He gives God the credit, gives God the glory. Are you seeing a picture of Joseph here? Now, true, he was probably spoiled. He didn't help that situation with his brothers much. But then when... Got in Potiphar's house. God showed favor on him. He would not sleep with Potiphar's wife, man of integrity. 
gets thrown in prison, interprets the dreams. We're, we're being told something about Joseph here, right? Something about the type of man that he is. Okay? You still with me? Look over at verse 38. 38 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now look down at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Skip all the way over to chapter 50. We know what's happened in the meantime. There's been a famine that has developed not only in Egypt, but in the whole Middle East region and in Israel. And Jacob is saying to the rest of his sons, I've heard that there's grain down in Egypt. Why are you boys still hanging around here? Go get us some food. And so they go down there. And of course, we know all the interchange between Joseph and his brothers. They don't know that this is Joseph. They don't recognize him. But now by chapter 50, they do. Uh, they become scared that now Joseph's going to deal harshly with them. But look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Folks, we tend to think that only good circumstances come from God. That's what a lot of people think. Only good circumstances come from God. But as Joseph says here, also as Job told his wife, and as Paul said in Romans 8, 28, God uses all things. All things. Okay, turn back to Romans 8. Turn back to Romans 8. And I want you to look at this passage in light of the storyline of Joseph. Okay? What's Paul began pointing out in verse 18? That there's no frustration. Paul essentially says there, I've thought about this business of suffering. I've considered it. Consider, the word consider is translated as reckon in some translations. It has mathematical applications. It implies that he's tried to make a careful assessment of this, a careful calculation of this. Paul is saying, I have given serious analysis to this business of suffering. Now, we know what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. He recounted all of the different ways that he himself as an apostle had suffered. There was a laundry list of ways that Paul had suffered. So Paul knew suffering up close and personal. He knew it firsthand. 
And he points out here, we suffer now. We experience trials, heartaches, death, illness, tragedy, divorce, job loss. Even in our world today, things like terrorism. Peter in 1 Peter 1 talks about our faith will be tried so that it will come forth as pure gold. God tries our faith. Sometimes our trials are from God. Sometimes they're not. But on top of that, we live in a fallen world. And Paul's pointing that out here. When Adam and Eve sinned, something happened. And what is it that happened? The whole creation was subjected to futility or corruption. All of creation. Sinners by nature and by choice, but Again, Adam and Eve's sin affected the whole cosmos, the whole creation, everything. And in a universe like this, there is suffering. Thinking about suffering could really frustrate us. Nobody likes to suffer. I can promise you nobody in here, nobody got up this morning... And said, God, bring me some suffering in my life today. Nobody wished for that. (laughs) Not part of your morning prayers. We suffer now in all kinds of different ways. Paul points that out. Again, it's part of living in a fallen world. We sin, others sin. We have an enemy, Satan. God will test us sometimes with suffering to strengthen us. Sometimes God will test us with suffering and not tell us why. We just have to trust that His grace is sufficient. We have to trust Him when there are no answers. And then He contrasts it with a future glory. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's coming a great day for the people of God. John says in 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. And we will be given glorified bodies, no more suffering." And on top of that, we'll see God's glory. And we'll see all of the glories of heaven. And we'll be in a perfect place, a place where sin cannot touch anymore. Disease will not affect us. Pain will not affect us. Bad things in the world will not affect us. We will be a part of a new heavens and a new earth. Hallelujah. Folks, Christians today, I fear, think of the afterlife a little bit in Greek platonic terms. I'll fly away. My spirit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zip out of this body and this creation one day. And my soul's going to be with, I'll fly away. And, and, and we think in terms of that. And yes, that's the intermediate state. But the Bible says you're going to have a body like the body you have now. There's going to be continuity with the body that you have now. You're going to know that you're still you, but there's going to be discontinuity because you're not going to suffer like you do now. And also, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, it's not going to be just some spirit world with spirits flying around. It's going to be a concrete world, a new heavens and a new earth with a glorified body too. Amen. Amen. 
we witness God's glory now in so many ways. But any way that we witness God's glory now is incomplete. Imagine a day when we are with the Lord forevermore and there is no evil, no sin, no Satan, no suffering. There's only glory that's going to be to such a degree you and I won't even be able to fathom it. What Paul is saying here is there is nothing bad that you go through now that can even begin to compare with that. The phrase that he uses here, not to be compared with, is the translation of a word that has to do with the weight of something. The idea here is of two things being put Opposite one another on a scale, Paul is weighing our present suffering and he's weighing our future glory. And as he weighs our, future, our present suffering and our future glory, do they just equal one another out? Is that what he's saying? No. Present suffering now, future glory the future glory is going to be so much weightier on that scale. The present sufferings that we go through now can't even be compared with what God's got coming for us. Amen? Now, folks, remember, Paul saw future glory. He got a taste of that, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about having the opportunity that time to go to heaven and what he saw there. He saw things, he says there, I'm not even allowed to talk about. Isn't it interesting? When people claim today to have these death, near-death experiences, they come back and next thing you know, they're writing books about it. But the Bible says we have somebody who really did go to heaven and come back, the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, I'm not even allowed to speak about it. Makes you wonder about these people today. They're just out to make a dollar for their pocket, right? Book sales. Paul was an apostle who went to heaven and came back. And he said, I can't even tell you about it. But my point is, he saw the other side. And he knew suffering in his own life. And he said, I'm here to tell you, there's no comparison. Life might be hard now, but what God's got waiting on his children is so much better. That's true. That's true. He gives an analogy here of childbirth. All all the pains of suffering now are like birth pains. Birth pains. God has a purpose in the pain. But the pain doesn't go on endlessly. The suffering doesn't go on endlessly. At the end of labor, at the end of labor pains, what is there to hold? There's a beautiful baby. And when that mama's holding that beautiful baby, is she concentrating on all the labor pains that she went through? No, it's like she's forgotten all about that. That's the way this world and then heaven's going to be. The good then is going to be so good, so unimaginably good, that it's going to erase all of the memory of the bad now. And so what Paul is saying here, the Christian doesn't need to get too discouraged and frustrated when he looks at the world. We have a blessed hope. Yes, There's groaning for now. Creation groans. We groan and creation groans. It's waiting on the sons of God, 
creation is waiting for us to be glorified because just as creation suffered along with mankind in the fall, so creation likewise is going to be redeemed along with when man is redeemed in that final sense. You with me? Then he talks about no isolation, verse 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're not alone. Yes, we have future redemption. We have a future end of suffering. But even now, we're not alone. We're not in isolation. We don't face life alone. We have the help of God's Spirit. He helps us in our weaknesses. And he gives an illustration of our weaknesses. Our prayer life. In our prayer life, what's he talking about there that's weak? Because we know that man is at his best when he's on his knees praying. So what's he mean talking about prayer in in weakness here? Well, the weakness is we don't know oftentimes what to pray for. We're praying about something. And we don't know how to best pray about it. Because we don't have a complete knowledge and we don't see tomorrow. So, what's he say that we have in a time like that, in a moment like that? We have the Holy Spirit to help. Because the Holy Spirit will pray for us according to the will of God. He helps us. And the word help is interesting. The only other place this word that's being used here, the Holy Spirit's help, the only other place it's used in the New Testament is in Luke 10. There Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And there's Martha preparing the meal in the kitchen. She's banging the pots and pans around. She's getting more frustrated by the minute because her sister Mary won't help her. Finally, she comes running in the room, and what does she say? Lord, tell my sister to help me. What did she want when she said help? What did she want? She wanted very practical assistance, right? Put the biscuits in the oven, you know, that kind of help. Stir the soup. Chop up the vegetables. She wanted real, practical, everyday help. Paul's using the same word here to describe how the Holy Spirit helps us in very real, tangible, practical ways. And we never have to question the effectiveness of His help. Because Paul mentions here that the Holy Spirit knows two things perfectly. And what are those two things? He knows the mind and the will of God because he's God's Spirit. He's the third, third person of the Trinity. He perfectly knows God's mind and God's heart and God's will. And also he perfectly knows our need. And so when the Holy Spirit prays for us, He knows how exactly to intercede for us that the two come together. The will of God and our need. He knows how to bring those two together. So that the intercession is exactly what the intercession needs to be. The rabbis... Believe that the Holy Spirit helped us in the past and He helps us in the future. But Paul's pointing out He also helps us right now in the present. He gets right in the middle of our suffering. The Holy Spirit gets right in the middle of our suffering and He helps us. Now, because of all this, 
Finally, we're going to talk about no limitation in verse 28. But what I'm wanting you to see is there's a connection with verse 28 with everything that has just gone before verse 28. One of the reasons we have the truth that's being taught in Romans 8, 28 is because we have what he's just said in Romans 8, 26. You with me? Because of 8, 26, the Spirit's help. Then we know that all things work together for good. He says, not some things, but all things. Is this verse here teaching that everything is good? Is everything good? Class, let me ask again. You're you're just kind of staring blankly. Is everything good? No. There are bad things. Cancer. Diseases, sin, all kinds of bad stuff. All kinds of bad stuff. He, the, this verse is not saying everything is good. Murder's not good. Rape is not good. It's a mistake to try to read this verse saying that everything in and of itself is good. Because that's not what the verse is saying. There's some bad things. But what the verse is saying is, regardless of what the things are, good or bad, even evil things, God is able... To use it in our lives to bring about ultimate good. And, and he's, he's not saying here that we feel this. He says we know this. In other words, it is a bedrock conviction that we have. A bedrock conviction that we have is that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. Folks, don't pull one or two events out of your life to be bitter about. He points out here that God is using everything for good. He's actively at work in the hearts and lives of His children. Notice what He says. For those who are called, for those who love God, and those who are called according to His purpose. Folks, this is a promise for God's children. Romans 8.28 is a promise for God's children, those who belong to Him. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.19? He said to Timothy, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are His. Does the Lord make a distinction in people? Does He know those who are His? Yes. And those who are His, He's able to work all things together for good. You remember when Paul said that the Lord knows those who are his? You remember the context of that? It was Korah's rebellion. You remember Korah's rebellion? Korah and his gang, they didn't like Moses. And and God said, tell them to line up over here. And Moses, you line up over here. And Moses said, if you're with me, be over here. If you're with him, be over there. And, And what did God do? God opened up the ground and swallowed those wicked men. Because God knew those who were His. God knows those who are His. 
And what Paul is saying here is we know that for those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose, those who are God's children adopted into his family, everything in your life, everything, even the things right now that you wake up maybe cursing in the morning. I don't mean that you're saying bad words, but you know what I mean. The things that you're cursing about your life, well... God's even able to use that for your good. Everything in your life, everything, God is able to use in your life and my life for ultimate good. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Now go back to Joseph a minute. Think with me a minute back to chapter 37. Do you think God was at work in the favoritism that was shown to Joseph? You think God was at work in that? You think it was sinful? It was sinful, wasn't it? It was wrong for Jacob to... To show favoritism to one son and, and cause that sibling rivalry. That wasn't the right thing to do. But was God able to work in it? Work good? Yep. Do you think God was at work with the coat? The coat of many colors? And the resentment that came out of that? Was God able to work? Yep. What about the dreams? Yeah. How about Joseph being sent to spy on his brothers? Was, was God at work in that? Yep. How about with his brothers selling him? Yep. I'm not saying God's the author of sin. Don't hear me saying that. I, but I'm saying was God able to use it for ultimate good? Yes. How about Potiphar's wife? Was God able to use that? Yes. How about in prison? How about with Pharaoh's dream? How about with Joseph being placed in charge? All of those things. God able to work? Was God at work for good? Yes. How about with the famine? Yes. Was God at work in all of those things? Absolutely. Folks, think about what's being said here. God is not just sovereign over the big things in the world. Like in 70 AD when the Romans attacked Jerusalem. Or maybe in modern times, God bringing an end to World War I or World War II. Or what God does in the world today. Uh, to raise one ruler up in a country, put another down. Does God work in big things like Yeah, God works in big things like that. And, and most people say, yeah, they, they look at big, those big rocks in human history. Those big, 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 big things. They say, yeah, I see how God works in all that. How about the end of the world? How God's going to bring everything about at the end? Does, does God do that? Is God sovereign in that? Yep. He's sovereign in all of that. But think about what Romans 8.28 says in light of Joseph's life. God is sovereign over a single human life. And all that happens in that single human life. Life. Let that sink in. King David said in Psalm 139, God knows all of my days before I live even one of them. Before I'm born and I live the first day of my life, God has all of my days numbered. King David said that. You know, some people are threatened by God, by by God's sovereignty. But actually, 
It is given in Scripture as something that should be a tremendous comfort to God's people. If I thought for one minute that God might be sovereign over 80% of my life or 90% of my life, but the other 10% or 20% of my life, I'm on my own. I'm on my own and I better hope it works out. I, I, I better just hope. If I thought for one, uh, one minute that that's the way it was, God's sovereign over 80% of my life, 90% of my life, the other 10 or 20%, I'm all on my own. I don't know that any of us could live with that kind of uncertainty or that kind of pressure. I want you to know that your life, just like Joseph's life, is in God's hand. Your life, just like Joseph's life, is in God's hand. You are not on your own. Things are not chance or fate or coincidence or you just doing the best you can. No, God is at work. Not just in the big things, but God's at work in the little things. Working good to those who love Him and those who are the called according to His purpose. Amen? Again, it is meant to be a comfort. A comfort to God's people. That God is in control of everything in my life. I'm not on my own. And you're not on your own. To just try to fend, fend off things and just do the best you can. No. God is in control. Does that take away human responsibility in your life? No. The Bible has both of those things right along together in the Bible. How do we figure all that out? I don't know. But the Bible affirms both of those things. Comfort. Assurance. God's at work in your life. Not just the big things, but the small things. Working good.